0: Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, or Hebrews chapter 6, sorry. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll be reading this morning verses 9 to 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. There it says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and Lord, we pray today that these better things, Lord, things that accompany salvation, Lord, that this is what would be true of us in terms of our spiritual state. We know that we all have the flesh, we all stumble in many ways, and yet, Lord, we pray as well that the evidence of your grace and of your love would be seen in our life so that toward one another and even in our own minds, Lord, that we might be convinced of better things, Lord, things that accompany salvation. And we thank you, Father, that you are not unjust and that you will never leave or forsake your people, but that you have promised to deliver us from our sins and, Lord, to produce everything that is necessary, Lord, within us, in order for us to maintain and be preserved in our faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would even today, Lord, use your word, Lord, to build us up. We ask for your grace and mercy to come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we finished Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 last week, where we saw in that passage one of the most severe warnings in all of the Bible. And there are several such passages in the book of Hebrews warning us about the great danger of falling away from the faith and the dread that is coming uh, for those who are under the judgment and condemnation of God. These warnings are for Christians, right? He's writing it to believers, to those that he's convinced of better things of, for our good and benefit for all the scriptures belong to us. All scripture has been breathed out by God, and all of it is profitable for our salvation, including the warning passages that produce within us proper fear toward God. However, the apostle also knows the need of encouragement for the saints. He does not want to leave them in excessive sorrow. He does not want to terrify or discourage the minds of sincere believers. And that is why, having given to them such a stern warning, he now, in verses 9 to 12, turns to encouragement. Right? Having communicated to them the dreadful ruin of all apostates, he assures the Hebrew Christians that he has passed no such judgment upon them and that he does not consider these things to be true of them. He has far greater thoughts of them and entertains a confidence that they will indeed receive the full outcome of their faith, which is the salvation of their souls. The harsh words of 1-8 to were no declaration concerning their state, but were written to excite them to diligently attend to their salvation. But now he turns to encourage them, to give them hope and comfort, and to assure them of his love for them." And in so doing, he lays out for us a perfect pattern of wisdom in how it is that we ought to admonish one another in the need for us to avoid extremes on one side or the other. Right? There are some who are too soft, who are too lenient, who wink and smile at sin, and who fail to admonish the saints as the apostle did in Hebrews 6 verses 1 to 8. Who would say, that the speaking in such a way is unloving. But this clearly is not the case. For though the apostle spoke to them with such severity, he assures them of his love for them. His motive was not cruelty or hatred or malice or envy, but rather love. If one is too lenient, then whatever warnings and reproofs found in the Bible will be weakened among the people So that they're not given serious consideration. However, there are also those who are too severe, who are too harsh, who so terrify the minds of the godly with threats and warnings, so as to discourage them and to provoke them, to unsettle their minds, just as it can be in the home. Some parents are too lenient and indulge the children. Others are too severe and provoke them to anger. But a good and wise parent knows how to exercise both of these with proper moderation, being neither too lenient nor too severe. And so it is with our apostle, and so it should be in the church of Christ. He has proven that he is willing, when necessary, to warn us with the most dreadful warnings imaginable. But now he will show that he is willing to comfort and to speak tenderly to those who are under his care by assuring them of his love and of God's faithfulness towards them. And we need a balance of both of these approaches, right? Both of them have their place in the Christian life. So let's turn then to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 12. We'll begin here in verse 9. He says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He begins here by addressing them as beloved. And in this, he is reaffirming his love for them, using this term of endearment for them, a term of, infection, of affection to describe his attitude towards them. Though he has spoken very hard, difficult truths to them, his motive was not hatred or spite, but everything has issued from his deep love for the brethren. In this term, beloved, is the term used by God the Father to describe the relationship that existed between him and the Son. We remember at the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Father declared discerning, uh, concerning him, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Also on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew twelve eighteen, he says there, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The father had this special, unique love for the son and he expressed this love for the son through this term, this title of endearment, calling him his beloved. And when we are found in Christ, then the same love from the Father comes to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ, the saints of God are beloved to God as well. In our natural state, this is not the case. In our natural state, we are the object of God's wrath. We are the object of his hatred. We are despised by God because of the filth of our sin. And so long as a man remains in the state of sin, the wrath of God abides on him. And if he dies in that state of sin, then he can expect nothing good from the Lord on the day of judgment. God's love will not abound to him, resulting in salvation, but instead God's hatred will rest upon this man, resulting in everlasting condemnation. But when a man is converted... When, by the sheer kindness and good pleasure of the Lord, God redeems a man out of the state of sin and brings him into a state of grace, God no longer regards that man as an object of his hatred. He no longer sees him as an enemy, as an object to be destroyed, but instead, that man is an object of his deep love, his affection, his grace, and mercy. He is beloved By God. God is well pleased with him. He no longer detests the man, but now he delights in him. And all of this is on the basis of who? On the basis of Christ. It is on the basis of Christ that there is this change in the way that God relates to a man. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ or hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. The believer, the child of God, no longer stands before the Lord on the basis of his sin. He does not stand before God on the basis of his many works of unrighteousness, but rather he now stands before God on the basis of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks upon that man, he looks at him with favor because it is as if he is looking upon his own son. That man's life is hidden in Christ. And what did the father declare concerning his son? He is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. And that same love the father has for the son is then granted to us. Granted to those who belong to Christ. And this is why Jesus says in John 15:9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. The Father loves me. And with the same love, the Father loves me. So I also love you. And if the Son loves us, who else loves us? The Father and the Spirit as well. In Romans chapter 5 verse 5 it says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When God's love is poured into the heart of a man, it changes that man. How can the love of God come within us? How can that love abide in us and we remain unchanged? We remain a man of hatred, of envy, of jealousy of constant bickering and fighting. How can the love of God abide in a man and he remain in that state? Because the love of God is poured into our hearts, we are then to love as well. And that causes us to love God and to love our neighbor. We are not the same as we used to be. It changes us and we become different. In our natural state, in the state of sin, It says this in Titus chapter three, verse three. It says, we were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Our days, he says, were spent in malice, which is a very hateful disposition, envy, which is a very hateful, sinful, worldly, fleshly disposition, Hatefulness, hating God, and we hate one another. This is how we are in our natural state, in the state of sin. We are filled with hatred. We are completely bereft of any true spiritual love. Though a man may have natural love or affection, such as an unbelieving husband toward his wife or his children, right? even the Gentiles do these types of things. right? If you love those who love you, then what different are you than a Gentile, than a Muslim, than a Buddhist, right? than a Hindu? Don't all of them in some way or another, the fathers care for the children? The husbands may have some love for their wives. And this is because of God's kindness that men are not given over to the hatred that is within their hearts to the full extent. But that is a natural love. It's not an evangelical love. It's not a spiritual love that God causes to be formed in the hearts of his children, right? There is a spiritual love that will be formed within us that comes into us because of the love of God that has been poured into our hearts. Before our conversion, we are filled with malice, envy, we're hateful, and we hate one another. But after our conversion, we become different, we are changed. Before, we're filled with all of these hateful dispositions. But now we are filled with the love of God. And when the love of God is poured into our hearts, it causes us to fulfill the two great commandments. And what are the two great commandments? But to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And especially when it comes to the neighbor, it will be the household of faith. We'll do good to all men and we ought to love even our enemies and even unbelievers, but especially in the household of faith, who should be the objects of our love and affection? It should be our fellow believers. It should be those who are in the household of faith. 1 John chapter four. And these two things are inseparable. Inseparable, it is impossible for someone to have true love for God and yet to hate his brother it cannot be this is a massive contradiction for one to declare such things 1 John chapter 4 verse 15 whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us God is love And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There, when the love of God, God we love because he first loved us, but the love that we love with is a love that is directed toward these two ends both toward God, our Father, but also toward the saints, the, our brothers in the Lord. God's love causes us, in turn, to love God and love our neighbor, especially the, the household of faith. And this is what the apostle is doing in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. In addressing them as beloved, in using this term of affection and endearment, He is reaffirming his love for them. He loves them because they are loved by God. And that same love that existed between him and the Hebrew Christians should exist between all of God's children, right? If we are children of God, then we must love one another in the same way. We must hold each other in high regard. We must have this care and affection and this endearment one toward another. And if it is not there, right, if that is absent from us, it's a serious issue, right? It is an issue in 1 John that is so serious that it is evidence that one may not be a true believer because he's saying it is an utter contradiction, If you don't love your brother, then it proves that the love of God is not in you. And if God's love is not in you, then what does that prove? That you're a reprobate, that you're an unbeliever, that you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. The entirety of the book of 1 John is addressing this very issue. So here he begins by showing to them, by proving to them, affirming his love for them by referring to them as his beloved. And in doing so, manifesting this wisdom that we spoke of earlier. The wisdom necessary when addressing those who are in sin because, again, we remember from chapter five, they have become dull of hearing. There is sin and he has addressed this sin but his addressing of the sin doesn't mean that he puts away any terms of endearment, any love that he has for them. And this is why it tells us in Ephesians 4.15 that we are to speak the truth in love. If we speak the truth in harshness, then that harsh demeanor that we have toward the one, even if what we're saying is true, are they gonna wanna listen to us? Of course not, right? If we come as a big fat jerk. Of course, they're not going to listen to us. If we are bitter and harsh and angry and mean in the way that we address one another, then no one is going to listen to us even if what we are saying is true. That's why the Bible tells us that we must speak the truth in love, right? Speaking the truth in love, the love is the qualifier of the way that we speak. And it means that we can also speak the truth, but do it without love. And if we do that, we put up barriers to people listening to them coming and adhering to the truth. Also, Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let your speech always be with grace. Well, isn't this an example of addressing sin but doing it with grace? Having just confronted their sin, he immediately reaffirms his love for them, calling them his beloved, assuring them of his goodwill toward them, assuring them that he's not even convinced these things are true of them, but he still addressed them in this way. Next, notice Hebrews 6 verse 9. He says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation here the apostle is convinced of better things concerning the hebrew christians and those better things are things concerning salvation this in contrast to the things that were declared to be true of the apostates right he has talked about in verses one to eight he talked about those who fell away those who have become apostates from the gospel They are those who were described as being impossible to renew them to repentance again. Those who were described as ground that drinks the rain and yields only thorns and thistles. They were described as those who were worthless and close to being cursed and burned up by God. Now, those are not things that accompany salvation being impossible to be renewed to repentance, falling away fully and finally from the gospel of Jesus Christ, being declared worthless and cursed and being burned up, right? Those are not the things that accompany salvation. That is the things that accompany damnation, that accompany condemnation. This is the outcome of all of those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second Thess- Thessalonians 1 verse 9 Says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those who fall away will suffer the same outcome as the idolaters as the liars, as the sorcerers, as the Muslims, as those who walk and follow false religions. Though they once made a profession of faith in Christ, in the end, they will not receive things that accompany salvation, but they will be assigned with the goats, with all of the rest of the unbelievers and the wicked and the ungodly, those who even did not make professions of faith in Christ, and they will suffer the same eternal destruction that will come upon all the ungodly but not the believer. The believer will not pay the penalty of eternal destruction. He will not be sent away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The child of God will not suffer such a fate, but instead he will receive the full realization of his salvation. As it says, in the future, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all of those who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. This is what awaits the believer. These are the things that accompany salvation. Salvation a crown of righteousness, to be in the presence of the Lord, to have the full end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And this is what he is convinced of concerning them. These things that accompany salvation, even though there is sin in them, even though they have become dull of hearing, even though in chapter 5 they are in an infantile state. Yet this present sin does not so dominate his perspective of them that he forms an ill, unjustified opinion of them. He still is favorable towards them. He is still convinced that they are indeed true believers who will receive the many blessings of salvation. Yes, there are some thorns and thistles among them. And these things need to be dealt with. They need to be taken care of. They have become dull of hearing. They are being sluggish in pressing on to maturity. And he wants them to overcome those sins. However, is that all that's true of them? Are they only producing thorns and thistles? No, that's not all that is true of them. There is also the presence of good fruit there is also evidence of the work of the Spirit in their life. Because how, without the love of God being in them, are they able to love God and to love the saints in the way that they're doing? Notice what he says in verse 10. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. They have love toward the name of God and they have love toward their fellow saints because they've been ministering to them and this ministering to them was not something that they did 20 years ago and then has not been seen in their life for the next 20 years. But this is something that they did in the past, but they continue to do it to this very day. It is ongoing fruit that is seen in their life. They have shown love for God and they have shown love for the saints and they continue to show love for God and to the saints to this very day, which is clear evidence to him that the grace of God is found within them, that these are indeed redeemed people, even though there's still a mixture of sin. If there was a mixture of sin and any mixture of sin discounted our profession of faith, If any evidence of any sin meant that we were reprobates and we're all going to hell, then who among us could stand? Wouldn't we all be condemned? If we're judging each other and forming our opinions based upon the presence of even one sin, then we're going to have an ill opinion of everyone within here. But we, yes, we do need to deal with sin, and he does that. But also we need to have a holistic look. We need to look at people in a just way. And while there is sin, there's not only sin, there's also good fruit that is within them. And when there is good fruit, where can it come from? It has to come from the Spirit of God. And there's no believer in this present life who will ever produce only good fruit without some mixture of thorns and thistles. And this is why we must look to both. We must look to both. When there is the thorns and thistles, then of course we need to address it. And the apostle has done so. He's told them that you're dull of hearing. He's told them that they need to press on. They need to mature in the faith. He's warned them about the danger of apostasy. However, this isn't all that he's looking at. He also is seeing the good fruit that is within them. And when he sees that, he's very encouraged concerning their state. And he wants to affirm them in that. He wants to build them up and give them confidence that he, the apostle, is convinced of better things concerning them, things that accompany salvation. But with many people, because we have such a judgmental, harsh spirit, because of the flesh, this is what the flesh wants us to do, bite and devour one another. With many, what we want to do is focus only on the bad and discount anything that is good. Many people will dismiss and discount the evidence of God's grace. They will discount the fruit though there's clear evidence of the fruit, because a thorn pops up, because there is a thistle here and there, then they'll say, well, the fruit, whatever it is, it must not be any good. It has rotten worms within it, though it has the appearance of being good fruit. If we are given to a censorious spirit, to a harsh, judgmental spirit, to a tendency to maximize sin and completely discount the evidences of faith, then we're going to write people off and we're going to destroy the one for whom Christ died. And we won't be following the pattern of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did he do that with his own disciples, though they had sins that appeared? Did he completely dismiss them and count them off, write them off? Because throughout the course of his three years with them, they continued to to commit sins against Christ and against one another. Of course, he did not do so. Now, he addressed it, but he also encouraged them and affirmed them in their faith in the good things that he saw within them. And this is how we must be as well. It says in 1 Corinthians thirteen seven that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So long as there is reason to hope, so long as there is reason, some evidence, right? And we know from our memory verse right now that the dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. So long as there is some evidence of the grace of God in a person, then we ought to hope in the disposition of love, hope the best concerning this person. Things accompanying salvation. Now, this hope cannot be blind. It cannot be stupid. It cannot be baseless, right? It has to have some evidence. It cannot be a hope that there's no reason to hope for. And it may be a time in a person's life when we have to testify that their faith is proving itself to be vain, worthless faith. That they are manifesting and proving that they never were really a true believer. That there is no signs of life in that person. And if that is the case, then we need to be honest and admit the truth about such a one. But that isn't the case in Hebrews chapter 6. This is not blind hope. He has good reason to hope in them and be convinced of better things because he sees evidence of the grace of God within them. And based upon this evidence, he is persuaded of their salvation and that there are better things in store for them than what he declared concerning those who fall away from the faith. Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15, verses 14 to 15, we see a similar example of this. And this was a church that up to this point he had not even visited them yet it was just based upon the testimony he received from other people concerning them and the reputation that they had he had not even been with them personally yet but notice what he says in romans 15 14 and concerning you my brethren i myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another but I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. He is convinced that they are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another, that they have even reached a state of maturity in their faith, and this based upon the testimony, the evidence that he has seen within them. Notice next in Hebrews chapter six, verse nine. He says that we're convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Even though we're speaking in this way, and you might think because I've spoken to you in this way that I have an ill opinion of you, that I think that you're reprobates, I think that you yourselves are apostates. He's saying that that is not the case. Though I've spoken to you about these things, I don't think that it is true of you. And having true love for the saints, right, having a strong conviction of their salvation does not negate the need for warnings, threatenings, exhortations, and encouragements in the faith. The best persuasion we can arrive concerning any man, right? Think of the person, the one person that you would say, of all the people I know, I am most convinced that this man is a true believer, a true child of God, a true saint, that he is going to inherit eternal life. Even with that person, there is never a time where there is not room for him to receive such admonitions as what we saw in Hebrews chapter six, verses one to eight. And that is because these are the means established by God for our perseverance, for our endurance in the faith. Even the most seasoned believer, the most mature among us, still has need of perseverance because none of us, so long as we're still alive, and everyone here, as far as I can tell, is still alive. Though sometimes I have my doubts about some of you. Everyone here is alive, as far as I can tell, still living in this present world. So have any of us reached the the end goal? None of us are there yet. We all have need of perseverance, even the most mature, even the most aged among us. We all need to be diligent in our faith, and the means given to us by God must be applied by all of us to increase and to the preserving of the grace of God within us. And one of those means given by God are these warnings in scriptures, the threats and dangers of what will come upon the ungodly, even upon the apostates and those who falls away. The man who believes himself to be above the need for such warnings and admonitions, who is so secure and confident in his salvation that he does not need such warnings as we read in Hebrews 6, 1 to 8. He is in grave danger. He is in danger of committing the folly of the church of Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, notice what they say there. They would be the ones who would say, why are you talking to us like this? Why are you telling us about the danger of falling away? Of course we could never do that. We are secure and confident in our standing. And we remember what the apostle said. Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Well, notice Revelation 3, 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And yet you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The church that was most confident in their standing in all that they had was the one who needed it most, that was completely bereft of anything that was good and right. This is a root of bitterness that springs up and defiles many. If our persuasion of salvation leads us to this false vain security, to the neglect of our duty, then we are in a very dangerous position. Whatever a man's state, whatever his maturity in the faith, however long that he's been a Christian and has walked with the Lord, all of us are obligated to give ourselves to all of the means appointed by Christ for the building up and preserving of our faith. And that is the whole counsel of God, which includes every single word of Scripture, such as Hebrews 6, 1 to 8. And while the content may not be speaking about us, it needs to be spoken to us. And that is the case here. He's telling them, I don't think that this is true of you. I'm not talking about you when I say these things, but I am talking to you. And you do need to hear this because he knows this is what God will use to strengthen their faith to cause them to shake off this sluggishness and to diligently attend to their own salvation. And this speaking, such warnings, such threats is in no way contrary to the way of love, but is the fulfillment of love among the body of Christ. Matthew Matthew 24, verse 45 says this, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? The sensible slave, the faithful slave must know when to give the proper food at the proper time. And he needs to feed the household with all of the food given to him by his master for their nourishment. For their building up. And does that not include Hebrews 6, 1 to 8? Well, it's in the Bible, therefore, it needs to be given. It needs to be fed there to the body of Christ. And we know in Acts 20 20, the apostle there says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. Whatever was profitable, and what verses in the Bible are profitable? Every single one of them, all of them are profitable for us. So everything profitable, he declared the whole counsel of God to them. And this is what we ought to do for one another as well. Whether we are the public teacher or whether it be in the private conversations that happen between one another, we should be admonishing each other with all of the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Hebrews six ten. It says for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints here he provides another motive to perseverance in the faith and this other motive is the assurance of rewards from the lord based upon god's own faithfulness to keep his promise He's already stirred them up by warning them of the danger of apostasy. This to produce the fear of God so that they would avoid the warning, the danger that has been threatened to them. But there's also another motivation given to stir them up, to incite them toward attending to their salvation. And that is the hope of gain. And not only do we as Christians want to avoid the loss the forfeiting of our soul, but we also have set before us a prize, a crown of righteousness that God will award to us who long for the appearing of Christ. And when will he award that to us? We don't receive it in full in this life. We have a taste of it in this life, but the full realization of it is in the life to come. So we have both of these motivations We have the threats and the warnings to motivate us to say, I don't want that to happen to me. Therefore, whatever these people are doing in Hebrews chapter six, verses one to eight, it is their falling away from the faith. It is their false participation in the things of God. And then they fall away and they don't persevere and they don't continue and they renounce their faith in Christ. And you see what's gonna happen to them. And I don't want that to happen to me. So I don't wanna be like these people. But also you see, the prize that is set before us. You see the joy. You see the blessing. You see the reward that Christ will give to all of those who persevere. And that also motivates us to press on, to endure in the faith. It's just like with a donkey or any other beast of burden. And a donkey is a fitting description of us in our current state. Sometimes the donkey needs the whip in order to cause it to press on. And sometimes he needs something set before him, some carrot or something that will cause him to go in the direction that he needs to go. And this is how we are in the Christian life. We need both the threats and warnings as a whip to shake off the flesh, but we also need the promise of reward to entice us, right, to excite us, to enliven our spirits so that we press on. And both of them have the same goal which is to shake off our sluggishness, the sin that so easily entangles us, to shake it off and cause us to press on toward the goal that is set before us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he gives to them both motivations in order to cause them to persevere. Having assured them of the wrath of God that will come upon those who fall away, he now assures them of the blessings that await the godly. And the confidence that we have and that we shall be accepted by God, right, is never based upon our own works, right? It is not based upon anything found in us. Even though he says God is not unjust to us to forget your labor or to forget your work, but he's not saying that it is our work that causes us to be acceptable in the sight of God. And that God is relating to us on the basis of strict justice. So that if we work hard enough, and if we present this work to God, then God is obligated to give us the reward of eternal life. If that was the case, would any of us stand? No, because all of our works are detestable in the sight of God. Even as believers, our works are not acceptable in the sight of God. Because so long as we remain here in this life, There is always the flesh. It's not coming from a perfect man, and there's always the mingling of corruption of the flesh in all that we do. Our person and our performance is never acceptable in the sight of God based upon us, right? As they come from us, it would surely fail. But our acceptance is based upon the unchanging character of God. And it is his faithfulness to fulfill his promises that gives us confidence that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will reward us of the works that we do in his name and the love that we show toward the saints. God will remember these things and God will reward these things because if God did not do so, he would have to deny himself. It says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here he is assuring us that our labor in the Lord, that our obedience to the gospel will not be lost, and that we will never do these things in vain. The Hebrew Christians were faithful to the Lord. Their faith was not a dead faith. It was a living faith that was working itself out, manifesting itself in acts of love toward the saints. And these acts of love were accompanied with much trouble, with much hardship, with much danger and persecution. They, because of their love for the saints, were suffering the loss of their possessions. Hebrews chapter 10. And here this would be a temptation for them to fall away. What benefit do I get in serving the Lord? Because of my service to the Lord, I am having the loss of my possessions. And the apostate will see this. This is the seed that falls there amongst the rocks. When persecution rises on account of the word, what does that person do? He falls away. Because he says, what's the point of this? What's the benefit? Why would I serve the Lord? Right, I get nothing from this, right? I'm not getting any benefit or advantage because that that is sown there amongst the rock, he's only thinking in terms of this present world. He's not a heavenly-minded, eternally-minded, spiritually-minded person. But when do the saints receive their reward? Well, God can bless us in this life, but ultimately it is the hope of eternal blessedness that causes us to press on. Hebrews 10, 32. But here, in the case of the Hebrew Christians, he says, Remember the former days, when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you... Yourselves have a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Here, after their conversion, after they had been enlightened, they had a hard conflict of sufferings. They were reproached, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, made a public spectacle. Because of Christ. But not only because of their profession of faith in Christ, but also because they shared in the suffering of the saints. There were some among them that were imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. And when those saints were imprisoned, did they neglect them? Did they say, I don't want to associate with them because if I associate with them, then they're going to figure out that I'm a Christian as well, and they might throw me in prison too. They didn't do that. Instead, they fulfilled their obligation, the obligation of love. This is what he's talking about, their labor and the love that they show toward God and toward the saints in ministering to them. In the mind of the apostate, when this suffering is happening and he's losing his possessions, he's being mistreated, he's being reproached because of the name of Christ and sharing with the saints, what will he do? Well, he'll turn away from the faith. He'll renounce Christ. He'll renounce the the body of Christ, the saints. He'll have nothing to do with them because all he cares about is this present life. But the true believer will persevere in these things and will not renounce Christ and will not renounce his fellow saints, even though he is suffering because of his association and his attachment to both. And when that happens, who will come out on top? Who will ultimately be the winner in this scenario? It is the one who may suffer temporary loss. In the immediate context, right, in this present life, they may suffer the loss of all things. They may be put in prison as well. They may lose their property. They may be plundered in this way. They might even lose their life. But why should we press on? Why should we continue with the Lord? Because there is a crown of righteousness that awaits all of those who persevere through this life. And he is assuring them that God will not forget this, right? We have to have confidence that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we press on and persevere through many tribulations, that all of the things that God has promised to us, right? If In Christ, we only have hope in this present world. Doesn't the apostle say in 1 Corinthians 15 that we of all people are to be most pitied? The reason we are not to be pitied is because we're not living for this present world. It is the hope of eternal life. It is eternal blessings that causes us to persevere through many tribulations and enter into the kingdom of God. But how can we know? How can we have certainty and confidence that if we suffer for the Lord now, we will be rewarded for it in the life to come? Well, it's based upon the righteousness of God. God is not unjust so as to forget God is the one who has made the promises. And God has sworn to himself and to us that he will surely do it. And if God forgets, and if God fails to reward, then God would be denying himself. And can God ever deny himself? No, God will never do such things. He will not forget their work. He will not forget the love that they have shown toward his name and to the saints. And this is true, not just for them, It's true for all of God's people. We are assured that we will also receive future rewards, that God will not fail to reward our work and our love on the day of Christ. And this assurance is not based upon the quality of our work. It's not based upon the fervency of our love, but it is always based upon the grace of God and his faithfulness to fulfill his own promises. Who's the one who has called us to these duties? Who is the one who has promised to reward us for such duties? Who is the one who gives us the strength and grace to perform such things? Is it not God himself who has called us to obedience to his name? Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Ephesians two verse eight for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Who prepared the good works for us beforehand? God is the one. They're all a part of this covenant of grace that he's entered in with his people. Even the good works performed by the children of God toward the Lord and toward the saints, all of that flows from the grace of God. And we must understand that the entirety of our standing before God is based upon the covenant of grace. It is this covenant, this relationship that God has entered into with us. God is relating to us solely on the basis of his graciousness granted to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So even when we talk about the good deeds of the saints and the rewards that God will bestow upon them, where does all of it come from? Where does it all flow from? It all comes from His grace, from the covenant of grace. Even our work and the love that we have toward God and the saints is a result of the grace of God in our lives. When God takes us into this covenant, He promises to accept us, both our person and our duties, all on the basis of Jesus Christ. We become acceptable to God because of Christ. And every duty or act of obedience that we perform to God is received by him with favor based upon who? Based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's not a single work, a work of faith or a work of love that we do that in and of itself is acceptable in the sight of God. But how are all of these things sanctified? How are they all brought before God so that God looks upon them and they're pleasing to him and that God will reward them on the basis of Christ? Because all of our duties pass from us through Christ and then they are presented to God. And God has promised to accept us and to reward us on the basis of these things because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because of the favor we have through him and when he mentions here the righteousness of God, that God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous. It is in relationship to his forgetting. It is not a matter of our works or merits, so that we are presenting works to God, and that God must, because of his justice, reward us because of the quality of the works as they come from us, as if we could present anything to God that would obligate God to reward any man or to be in the debt of any man. That can never be the case. God is not indebted to anyone. But here, his, not, his being uh, unjust is in relationship to his remembering the nature and tenor of the covenant or the relationship that he has with us. God has declared to receive us in all that he requires of us on the basis of Christ. And for God to fail to do so would be for God to deny himself. It would be for God himself to be unjust, which can never happen. When he takes us as his own. He not only grants to us every blessing of salvation, but whatever God requires of us, He also graciously provides and produces within us. So, for example, does God require faith in order for a man to be saved? Is it necessary? Is it a condition of salvation? Absolutely, it is necessary for a man to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does God require repentance? For a man to be saved? Absolutely. It is necessary for a man to repent of sin. Does God require us to produce good works as the outcome of our faith, as the manifestation of our faith? Of course he does, because faith without works is a dead faith that cannot save. Does God require perseverance? Is it necessary for believers to persevere to the end, to endure to the end? Absolutely. For Jesus said, it is by your endurance that you will gain your life. But though God requires these things in men, it does not mean that they are produced through men, by men's strength, apart from the grace of God, or that these things originate in the man. Where do they all come from? Where does faith come from? Where does repentance come from? Where do the good deeds of the saints come from? Where does perseverance come from? It all comes from the Father of lights. It all comes to us on the basis of the grace of God given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever God requires of us, he graciously provides on our behalf. It is the grace of God given to us that caused us to believe that caused us to repent of sin, that causes us to walk in obedience, that causes us to persevere to the end. And though God attaches blessings to these requirements, it does not mean that what he requires originated in us or that it is the product of our own doing, as if we are somehow meriting rewards from God, meriting the pardon of sin because of the quality of our faith or something that we produced in ourselves. No, this is never the case. Both the faith itself and the pardon of sin that is the result of faith, both of those originate in God and are graciously provided to us on the basis of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is with obedience. God promises his children that he will reward our obedience, our work, our labor of love. But the obedience that we perform comes from His grace. Every benefit needed for salvation in every condition that must be produced in the man, all of it from start to finish is graciously provided for us on the basis of the grace of God given through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if God did not give us these things, then He would be denying Himself. He would also be denying His Son because His Son came to save us. He came to give these blessings to us on our behalf. And if the father did not give these things to us that he has sworn to give to us, he would have lied to his son as well and sent him to come and die on the cross in vain. If all of these things, the whole of the universe would unravel if God did not reward the labor of love. So our confidence, our hope of receiving the outcome of our faith Our hope of eternal life is never based upon our own works, our own merits, our own goodness, nor anything that originates or is found in us, but always solely upon the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. And this is why God will never fail to reward his people. For if he did so, He would be failing to uphold the covenant that he has entered into, the agreement that he has made with us. He would be a liar. He would have to deny himself, and God cannot deny himself. He will never do so, and this is why we have such confidence. This is why we have such hope. Our salvation depends upon the very character and nature of God, upon the promise of God given to us Through Jesus Christ, that God will accept us on the basis of his Son, and that God will accept all of our duties based upon the mediation of his Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. This is what he speaks of. In making this connection to Abraham, he's applying it to the present situation in order to give them this confidence. Hebrews chapter six thirteen. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God wants to assure us of the unchangeableness of his purpose. And what is the purpose of God in his elect? That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. That the one who foreknew us, that the one who predestined us, the one who called us, the one who justified us, that he will also glorify us and he will give to us and complete this great work of redemption within us. And everything necessary, everything that God is producing within us, it all comes from the unchangeable purpose of God, based upon his very character and nature. And this is why he has sworn to us that he will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. So our salvation is secure, and our hope of eternal reward is secure because it has come to us on the basis of the promise of God and if there is evidence that we are indeed in this covenant that we have the love of God within us that the grace of God is manifested within us as it was with these Hebrew Christians even though there is still the remnants of the flesh even though there is still sin that they need to fight and overcome but there's also the remnant of the grace of God. There is the grace of God within them that is growing, that is expanding, that is clearly seen within them. Then they have great reason to hope that what God has begun in them, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And that hope is not just for them, but for who? For all of those who long for the appearing of Christ. And so let us take great encouragement, confidence, hope, knowing that if God has begun this work of salvation within us, we can rest assured he will never fail to bring it to its completion. And that is where our hope should be, not in our measly efforts, not in whatever it is that we produce, right? Whatever we produce as it comes from us, it's worthless. It is only God working within us that gives us such confidence. So then let us put our hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are such a gracious God, so kind, so merciful, Lord, that you forgive sin and iniquity. Lord, that you are, Lord, so gracious toward sinners. And Lord, we confess that we are all sinners, deserving of your wrath, deserving of your judgment. Lord, we are no different than any other men. And Lord, when we see great and notorious wicked sinners, Lord, such as Cain, Lord, such as the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of men like Ahab and Jezebel. We think of men like Judas Iscariot. And yet we see that in our natural state, we are no better than any of them. And left to our own devices, all of the sins and iniquities that they committed could have just as easily and would have most assuredly been produced in each and every one of us. And yet, Lord, we see that we are not like these men. But we recognize that this is not the result of anything that we have done. Lord, we were no better than they. We were no more spiritual. We were not wiser. We were not more godly than they were. But Lord, it must be because of your grace and mercy that you have chosen to freely give to us. And so, Father, we thank you that in your kindness and, Lord, in your desire to manifest and to display, Lord, your grace and mercy. Lord, you have chosen us to be the objects of, of such a display and that you have caused all of your goodness and your love to descend from heaven onto us. Lord, we thank you that we have such a testimony, Lord, of your love and kindness to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, this is how we know that you love us is that you sent your only son into the world that we might live through him that you send him to be the propitiation for our sins and that when we see him there by faith dying on the cross, Lord, we see that there your love was most clearly manifest and displayed to us. For why would you subject your son to such cruel treatment, to such miseries, Lord, if it were not to produce such a glorious result? and, Lord, to save to the uttermost those who believe. And so, Father, we pray that we would rest in him, that all of our hope and confidence of eternal life, Lord, that would never be based upon anything that we have done. Lord, that we would not look to our own goodness, Lord, to anything our strength is producing, anything that comes from us, but rather that everything would be based upon Christ and what he has done for us. Lord, we thank you that you have promised to receive us, Lord, both our person and all that you require of us on the basis of him. And we thank you, Lord, that everything that you require, you have graciously provided for our sakes. So, Lord, may we have an even greater confidence and a great hope, Lord, based upon the unchangeableness of your purpose, that lord you have desired to redeem for yourself a portion of mankind and that when there is the evidence of your grace within a man that we can have complete certainty and confidence that you who have begun this work that you will surely bring it to completion on the day of christ may this confidence never cause us to become dull lord to be so secure that we neglect our duties And that we're not diligent to attend to our salvation, but may it instead enliven us and excite us, Lord, to press on to an even greater maturity in the faith. And so, Father, we pray that you might grant this blessing to us on behalf of Christ, and that you might continue to work within your people. Lord, cause us to abound with love both for you and for one another. Lord, that we might have even greater confidence that we truly are your children. In all of it we pray and ask on the basis of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.